As we open God's word now this morning, our scripture reading is from Luke chapter 2 on pages 1018 and 1019 in your pew Bible, where we'll read verses 1 through 20, the well-known birth account of Jesus and the announcement of it to the shepherds, Luke chapter 2, read beginning at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary and betrothed. He was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out of the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. But an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising him for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Beloved, as we have witnessed this morning the baptism of three-week-old Titus, we've seen how small and helpless a newborn is, not even able to, to bring himself to the baptismal font, but needing to be uh, held and, and carried there by his parents, it's a wonder that in the incarnation of the Son of God, which we've just read in Luke chapter 2, that God would become so small. As it says in Philippians um, chapter 2, that, that Christ, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited or used to his own advantage, but humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. 
God makes himself an infant for our sakes. That's what we celebrate in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, God made low. To become our savior, as the angel says in verse 11, all that we we read of in in verses one through seven, where where God uh, humbles himself so much that he becomes an infant is, according to the angel's announcement in verse 11, for our sakes, he is born for us. The fulfillment of of that promise long ago in Genesis chapter three when mankind rebelled against God in sin and and plunged himself into misery, but God in grace pursued him. He said, I will send my son, the the seed of the woman, who will be, be born of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, to take the curse for you, to remove death from you, and to overcome your great enemy of Satan, sin and death. That's what God promised long ago in the garden, and that's what we behold the fulfillment of here in Luke chapter 2. God made low. A Savior is born to save us from our sins. And our response to this is to be that of the angels, that of the shepherds, and that of Mary. Our response is to consist of this same kind of praise that we see, the, the same kind of proclamation that spills over from that, and the same kind of pondering, the same kind of, of meditative reflection that we see in Mary. It's interesting, over and over in these first two chapters of Luke's gospel account, the, the uh, Lord brings the, the birth of, or the, the news of the coming birth of the Savior to these different individuals, be it uh, Mary or um, indirectly to um, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah in, in that their son be the, the forerunner of this son. And over and over we see what kind of response God's people are to have to this. And over and over it, it is one of, of praise. One of reflective, meditative praise where Mary or Zechariah, the songs that they sing are, are reflecting on all of the promises of God from of old. And he is bringing those to fulfillment through this child who will be born. So the same thing in this passage here. I just want to look briefly first at the, the circumstances of Jesus' birth in verses one through seven of our passage, and then beginning at verse eight, look at the announcement of his birth by the angel to the shepherds, and then in the last part of our passage, we'll consider that the response to Jesus' birth by the angels, by the shepherds, and by Mary. Consider first with me the circumstances of Jesus' birth. It tells us in verses 1 and 2 that this was during the time when Quirinius was governor of of Syria and uh, when Caesar Augustus had sent out a decree for a census. This reminds us that Luke is, is very much concerned with the historical details of what he writes. If you can remember back about a month and a half to uh, Luke 1, 1 to 4, that introductory sermon that was preached. In, in Luke 1, verse 3, Luke says that he has followed all things closely for some time past in order to, to write an orderly account so that you and I and, and Theophilus, to whom he writes, might have assurance. Um, Luke wants Theophilus and he wants us to know that the account he gives is grounded in history. That Jesus really did come. And, and, and so over and over, he adds these details at several points that, 
we might know that the incarnation is, is not some kind of myth, it's, it's not some kind of story, but it's real history. He says it occurred during the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria and Caesar Augustus had called for a census and, and so each person, like um, Joseph, we met back in Luke 1 verse 27, the one to whom Mary is betrothed, each person must return to their hometown to be registered. And so Joseph... He's a law-abiding citizen. He, he goes up from Galilee to the town, uh, from the town of Nazareth to the, the city of David, which is, is Bethlehem, because it tells us he is of the house and lineage of David. And so he goes there with Mary, who's nearing the time of giving birth so that he can both, um, on, on the one hand, fulfill his legal requirements, and yet, on the other hand, also care for his bride. He doesn't leave her so that he can go and... and uh, register for this census, but he is diligent to care for his bride in the midst of this. Matthew 1 tells us that he was a just man. And part of what that means is that he desired both on, on the one hand to be a law-abiding citizen, and yet also on the other hand to be a man who would care for his family. And so he takes her with him as he goes there to be registered so that she is not left all alone when it's time to give birth. And sure enough, Verse 6, while they're there, it says the time came for her to give birth. This is just what we're always afraid of, that it's going to happen while we're traveling. But this is the way that it had to be. The scriptures had to be fulfilled, Micah chapter 5, that the king and ruler who would be born would be born in Bethlehem. And that's really the main significance of these opening verses. They, they set the context for the fulfillment, Luke 1 verse 1, of prophecy. Remember, Luke has told us everything that he's written about in this gospel is about the fulfillment of what was written by the prophets. And here it's no different with the birth of Christ. He was born according to Scripture in the city of David, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That's the first function of this census. It provides the context in which the Scriptures might be fulfilled, reminding us that God is is providentially guiding and orchestrating everything that happens in this world, everything that happens in history to to bring about the good purposes of redemption. The census provides the context in which the scriptures might be fulfilled. Yet the census does a second thing also. It, It reminds us of the Davidic descent of Joseph, Jesus' legal adoptive father who goes to Bethlehem because he's of the line of David, so that we might be reminded that this child who's about to be born is the legitimate heir to David's throne. Remember, that's the point that Gabriel made back in Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, when he made the announcement to Mary. It's the point that Zechariah made in his glorious song, where he says in Luke 1, 69, that God has raised up a, a horn for David. And here Luke reinforces it again. He does not want us to miss the fact that this child is the king. Only the difference between this king and the king who was just called for a census couldn't be more striking. In the one, you have the, the royal pomp of a, of a man who, who, who was actually referred to as the son of God, who, who didn't mind inconveniencing a full-term pregnant woman so that he could count his people. A man who is concerned with power and doesn't mind using his power to inconvenience the weak. 
But in the other, you have the true Son of God who is willing to be inconvenienced for them, born in the lowly circumstances that we read of in verse 7, so that we who were lowly might be raised up. He uses his power to, to condescend and serve that we might be raised up. Very different from the kings of this earth. You see the, these humble circumstances into which he's born. It says that there is no place for him. So he's, he's placed in a manger. He's born among beasts. What kind of king would humble himself to such a degree? In fact, the Westminster Shorter Catechism in, in question 27, when it asks, um, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? In other words, how did Christ humble himself? Part of the answer that it gives is in the low condition in which he was born, and the proof text that it gives is Luke 2, verse 7. These humble circumstances of the true king are part of the necessary humiliation of the Son of God, who condescends so low that he would take on human flesh, becoming dependent on his mother, nursing at her breast, being laid in a feeding trough. As the church father Bede says, he is not enfolded with Tyrian purple, he is wrapped with rough pieces of cloth. He is not found in an ornate golden bed. He is found in a manger. And Bede says the meaning of this is that he didn't just take upon himself our lowly mortality, but for our sakes he took upon himself the clothing of the poor. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Though he was Lord of heaven, he became a poor man on earth to teach those who live on earth that by poverty of spirit, we might gain the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is here teaching us about the nature of true greatness. Jesus is here enacting for us what Mary sang of in Luke 1, where she said those of humble estate will be exalted while the mighty will be brought down from their thrones. The contrast that we see between Christ and Caesar is the same contrast that Mary sang of. The beginning of the great reversal where the proud are brought low, the humble are exalted. Commentator Arthur Just says, compared to the census and Caesar and all of Rome's grandeur, Christ's lowly birth shouts of the great reversal as the Lord of heaven descends to earth in such lowliness and humility. The incarnation of God in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger is God's ultimate reversal. Where God will exalt this humble child as king that he will bring down proud rulers from their thrones. And this humble one is going to be exalted as Luke's gospel will end with, with his ascension, where this humble child is lifted up to the highest place and given a name that is above every other name. But he will not be so exalted before first humbling himself to the point of even death at a cross, of which the humble circumstances of his birth are but the prelude. Philip Ryken says, everything that we know about Jesus' birth points to obscurity, indignity, 
pain, even rejection, as there's no place for him in verse 7. And his whole entire life be marked by these same things, even to the point of death on a cross. But God will then exalt him and give him a name above every other name that is worshipped by heaven and earth. And we get a little picture of this in verses 8 to 14, the angel's glorious announcement where they, they announce God's glory and call him a savior, Christ the Lord. And heaven and on earth are, are united together for a moment in praising this coming king. So look at me next at the announcement of the king, beginning in verse 8. And this is really the, the heart of, of this whole birth account Um, Verses 1 through 7 give us a a few details, but they don't really explain for us the meaning of all this. It's it's the angel's announcement that really fills all of this out. The angel here announces the significance of all that's that's just taken place. The magnitude of it is really already suggested by the fact that, that it's announced by an angel that it's interpreted by an angel. The the fact that God announces the birth of his son by a messenger from heaven who comes, verse 9, the the shining brightness of heaven's glory. And that shining brightness, it it says, fills the, the shepherds with great fear. We see something of the significance of what has just taken place and even the nature of this announcement. Something of the magnitude of the glory of God who has just condescended is seen in the glory of the the angels who are his messengers. This is but a faint reflection of the pre-existent glory of the Son who has just taken on the form of a servant. He is so glorious that as his heavenly messenger appears to these poor shepherds, they're stricken with fear because they cannot bear to see the brightness of the glory of God that is dimly reflected in this angel. And yet, he announces in verse 10, do not fear, because the glory of God in the highest is now condescended in the person of his son so that there might be peace on earth. Verse 10, he says, you don't need to fear because I come bringing you good news of great joy. That a child is born to you this day who is Christ the Lord. And there we see again that word Lord that was used by Elizabeth back in Luke 1 verse 43 where she confessed Christ's divinity. That the child in the womb of her relative Mary would just come to visit her was indeed her Lord and God. The angel is here announcing the same thing, that God has come. The long-awaited Messiah, that's the meaning of the word Christ, is born. That he is God himself, a savior, which is why they don't need to fear, because the good news that the angel comes proclaiming is that God in heaven does not need to terrify them, for he is making a way for there to be peace between heaven and earth. That's what he'll say in verse 14. That's why he says in verse 10, do not fear. Because though the holiness and glory of God in heaven should terrify them in their sin, God has come in peace to save them from it. The child who was born to save them from the wrath of God for sin so that they might know his peace. 
And that, by the way, is the same peace that's announced to us each Lord's Day in the, the greeting at the beginning of our service. We're just after we've been called into the presence of this holy God. He, in his grace, reminds us grace and peace to you I bring. He reminds us that though naturally in our sin we, we should fear, that he comes to us in grace and he comes to us in peace. You're Christ our Lord. That's the same thing the angel proclaims in verse 10. Do not fear, for I bring you good news of great joy. Which notice he says is for all the people. And in verse 11, that this Davidic Savior, he says, is born to them. These, I think, are, are two of the most striking words in the whole passage. Unto you. This is not like any other birth announcement. Um, when, when Titus was born, we announced that to the congregation. It didn't say, uh, congratulations to each of the members of Emmanuel, for to you was born a, a child at eight pounds and nine ounces, but it said to Andrew and Holly. And yet this child, the Christ, is not so announced, for his birth is for us. It's like Isaiah's famous birth announcement in Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He's born for you. Luther was not wrong when he said that, that one of the most important things about the gospel is, is the pronouns that, that we read concerning it. It's not just that he's born in the abstract, but he's born for you, for us, for me. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. It, it, it's almost as if this, this child is, is a gift being given from heaven to earth, and, and the words on the tag read, from God to the shepherds, who represent not the, the priestly class or rulers. They represent not the scribes or the Pharisees, it's interesting if you compare this with Matthew's account. You remember in, in Matthew chapter 2 when Herod was, was troubled as the Magi came, he, he summoned all the scribes and said, where is it that it says the, the Christ is, is to be born? And they, they rattle off, Micah 5 verse 2. And yet we see no excitement, no, no intention to then uh, go and follow up on this good news. It's almost as if they don't care. The announcement here is not made to those scribes and rulers, those, those Pharisees. It's not made to the rich of this world. But it's made to humble and lowly shepherds. The announcement is made to the same kind of people of whom Mary sang in Luke 1 when he, he, she said, he has put down the mighty from their thrones, but he has exalted the humble. And J.C. Ryle says the things of God's kingdom are often hidden from the great and noble and revealed to the poor. The application of which he says is, is let us resist the idea that religion is not for the common man, but the weak of the world are often called before the mighty. We'll see all throughout Luke's gospel, it's, it's the poor to whom Christ proclaims the coming of the kingdom. And that's what we see here, this first gospel announcement, where the, the first announcement of the gospel of great joy, the first announcement of the birth of, of a Savior was Christ the Lord, born of the city of David, is made to shepherds. And he not only announces this gospel of great joy that means peace for those on whom God's electing favor rests, but then notice he also gives them a sign. 
He doesn't just announce the gospel, that, that God in heaven makes peace on earth for those on whom his favor rests. But in his kindness, he gives a sign to go with it, saying, and this will be a sign for you, that you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And it's interesting, if you think back to the, the first chapter of Luke, the last six or so sermons that we've heard, God, uh, God has, has done this often so far in the gospel. Remember Zechariah. Zechariah was told that even in his wife's old age, in his old age, they would, they would have a son. And God gave him a sort of a backhanded assurance by making him mute. Um, yes, chastising him, as a loving father must, but also giving a gracious sign whereby Zechariah might be assured by his muteness that the promise would be fulfilled. Um, So with Mary, just a few verses later, gives her a sign. He he speaks to her the promise of the gospel that the son of David would be born in her, and yet also in his kindness, he then leaves her with a sign, saying, this will be a sign for you that your um, relative Elizabeth, who, who is well advanced in age and has been barren all her days, is also with child. God is gracious to give signs accompanying the gospel promise that he gives. And now with the shepherds also, he gives them a sign, that of a baby lying in a manger. God was doing for each of them what he did for us this morning. Although his word ought to be sufficient, mindful of the crudeness and weakness of our faith, as our Belgian confession says, God gives us signs. Sacraments, like what we beheld in the sacrament of baptism. In his kindness, he gives us signs to accompany the word like he did these shepherds to strengthen us in our assurance of the word that he's just spoken. And the signs that God gives, those signs uh, preach the gospel themselves. You think of baptism. The waters that were poured over little Titus this morning speaking of the cleansing that God provides through Christ. You think of the Lord's table. The broken body, the poured out blood, speaking of Christ's death in our place, which is that which which nourishes and satisfies and gives us life. And so with this sign in Luke 2, given to the shepherds, this sign likewise preaches the gospel. As we said earlier from that church, Father Bede, that the shepherds would not find this child in a palace, but they would find him lying in a manger. They would find him not enfolded in royal purple, but wrapped in rough pieces of cloth, not found in an ornate golden bed, but in a feeding trough. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became as poor. Here at Congregation, we see the humility of our Savior, a little baby bound in blankets, lying in a manger. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, takes on human flesh, is bound, swaddled, impotent. He who holds the world in his arms has his arms bound. 
Sinclair Ferguson has said, the one who bound the Pleiades and loosed the Orion, as Job says in Job 38, is now bound with blankets. And this is not the only place that he will be bound. If you read on in the Gospels, at his arrest, he is bound and seized on the cross. His arms and legs will, will once again be, be limited as they're nailed to a tree. And then there is that final swaddling in the grave. Where once again, at the end of Luke's Gospel, we find the Savior wrapped in linen cloth and lying in borrowed property. The shadow of his death and burial is already present at the description of his birth. Here we see the humility of Jesus. Here we see the weakness of the incarnation, the impotence of the omnipotent, the shadow of the death and burial of the Savior. Just as he will be wrapped in cloths by the end of the book, he is wrapped in cloths at the beginning as a sign of the shepherds that he is their Savior. Born that man no more may die because he will die for them. That, beloved, is the glory of the incarnation. The one who lies in such mean estate is the one who nails spears, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. The cradle is glorious because it points to the cross where the priest, king, Messiah, Lord in Christ will die for his people and then be buried. As J.I. Packer said, the, the crucial significance of the cradle in Bethlehem is that it lies along the road to the cross of Calvary. What a sign God here gives. For unto you is born this day the city of David the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angel brings this wonderful announcement. God signifies it with the child in the manger. And then we see the response as with, with Zechariah and Mary and Elizabeth in past weeks, this response is likewise one of praise. Look at me now. The response to Christ's birth by the angels, by the shepherds, and by Christ's own mother in the rest of our passage. We've, again, seen each of the last few weeks now how the, the inevitable response of the faithful who hear what God has done in Christ is one of praise and one of rejoicing. It's not one that sort of sits idly back in, in cold indifference, but it's one of joy. It's one of, of, of delight. It's one of praise and thanksgiving. And we see that again even with the angels. whose very announcement, their very proclamation of the gospel spills over into doxology as all true preaching should. The good news of verse 10 becomes the gloria of verse 14. Isn't that what so often happens in Paul's epistles too, where he's, he's, he's writing and all of a sudden he's in the midst of some long run-on sentence that ends in doxology, where he's praising God for the glory of his grace. It's the same thing here, this, this preaching by the angels, this proclamation of the good news of the birth of a king spills over into glory to God of the highest on earth, peace with those whom God is pleased with, those on whom his favor rests. And then the other angels, as they, they hear the good news, they cannot help but join in the praise. The same angels who had adored Christ 
for the entirety of their existence. The, the same angels who, who in heaven had, had adored the eternal Son of God for the entirety of their existence now worship him on the night of his birth. The same angels would watch from heaven as the Son of God assumed human flesh now spill over in heaven's joy at the salvation he's about to accomplish. Here, beloved, we see the fitting response to the gospel of great joy. It is rejoiced in by those who hear it. Glory to God in the highest. This is why we sing each Lord's Day. Because the only fitting response to the salvation of which we hear is praise which the shepherds understand as as we see them in verses 15 and following join in the praise. Where after they're they're told the good news or or gospel of verse 10, they're they're told the sign in verse 12, then they hear the praise in verse 14. What do they do in verse 15? They say, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that God has just made known to us. So it says they go with haste. I think that's the same language that was used um, earlier in in chapter one of of Mary. It says that she went with haste to uh, see the sign that God had given regarding Elizabeth. She went with haste to the hill country of Judea. Here, again, we see them go with haste to see this sign, to, to, to see this child. And then in verse 20, it tells us that they return glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and for all that they had seen. J.V. Fesco, in his helpful little book on the birth of Christ, he, he says that the shepherds here did not hesitate for a moment, but they immediately rushed off to look for the newborn king. They, they did not go to gawk and, and stare and marvel, but they went to worship. That's what they're doing here. It's almost as if this announcement by, by the angel is something of a call to worship to which they are now responding as they go in great haste to worship the king. Praising God because they had beheld now the Messiah for themselves. As they looked into that manger, they beheld the face of God in the face of Jesus. And so they worshiped. They are, in a sense, joining in the song of the angels, joining in in the worship of Hannah and Mary and Zechariah and and tomorrow of Simeon and Anna. And again, showing us by their example what our response should be to this Savior who has come to bring us peace with God. Our response should be to worship him with awe-filled reverence and joy. The kind of worship that even spills over into the proclamation that we see in verse 17, where now they, they go and make known to others the things that they have seen. It's a little bit like the woman at the well in John chapter 4 who meets the the glorious Christ, the glorious bridegroom, and it says in her haste, she she leaves her jar and she goes and she says to others, come and see this man who has told me everything I've ever done. Come and see the bridegroom. Come and taste of his living water. We see that same kind of thing here that our response to the announcement of this Savior is to be one of praise and that that praise is to spill over into proclamation, sharing this good news with others. And then we also see that this, this praise and proclamation are to be accompanied, verse 19, also with pondering. It says that Mary treasures up all of these things and, and she ponders them in her heart. 
I think it's interesting. You can look at different segments of the, the Christian church, different traditions, and uh, perhaps some of us are better at one thing or another of these. Perhaps we can learn something from some of our brothers and, and sisters in other traditions about the need to respond with joyous praise, about the need to, to respond with, with proclamation, uh, re- responding to this good news by, by um, evangelism and mission, praying for the coming of Christ's kingdom. And yet there are also those traditions that, that focus so much on, on those things, uh, running about hurriedly um, in, in service that, that we can forget also to do what verse 19 says. And ponder. And reflect and be a, a thinking people. And, and perhaps that's the, the, the greatest error maybe of today in many segments of the Christian church, this, this failure to be a, a thinking people who do what Mary does here. And even in the midst of our service, even in the midst of our praise, to stop and, and think about what an amazing thing this is. The angels praise, the shepherds proclaim, and Mary ponders. And each of these three collectively show us what is to be the church's response to this king. We're we're to take part in all three of these. Praise, proclamation, and pondering, they show us what is to be our response to the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. Like the angels, we praise him. Like the shepherds, we proclaim him and tell others of this Savior who has come, inviting them to come and see the Savior. Like Mary, we also pause and ponder and treasure these things in our hearts. It's amazing how many times in these opening chapters of Luke, it it, it speaks of Mary's meditative reflection. She'll do the same thing later on in Luke chapter 2 as uh, Simeon speaks in his presentation at the temple, and then um, at the end of Luke, as, as they uh, have that instance where the boy Jesus at age 12 is, is brought to the temple again, and they lose track of him, and it, it says again that Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart. So must we. Pondering the glory of the fact the Savior of the world has come in human flesh, to be bound in blankets, later bound in grave clothes, to make peace with God, to go from this cradle to the cross, and thereby to become our Savior so that we might be the recipients of this peace that the angels proclaim. It's right and fitting that the church would place the emphasis that it does on the incarnation, that we might do what the song of response that we'll sing in a moment says, and let all mortal flesh keep silence. And with fear and trembling stand, ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descended, our full homage to demand. God made low, to lift us up and our response is to ponder, praise, and proclaim our full homage he demands. Like the shepherds, we might respond to the proclamation that we've heard this morning and the accompanied sign that we've seen in baptism with faith and worship. Treasuring these things in our hearts and minds I'm doing what question 160 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says when it asks us how are we to respond to the preached word or a bit later when it asks us how are we to respond even to having witnessed the sacraments. 
Not just running out from here and forgetting what we've seen, what we've heard, but, but reflecting on these things, praying about these things, conferencing about them together, and then also sharing it with others, most especially with our children, as Andrew and Holly, you've, you've vowed to do this morning, that third vow that you made, to teach Titus all that you can about these wonderful doctrines of salvation, to teach him about this glorious Christ who is the sum and substance of everything that you'll teach him from the word and from our confessions. Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Christ who condescended from heaven to earth to go from the cradle to the cross to make peace between heaven and earth for all who repent of their sins and trust in him as the Christ responding in joy-filled worship. You teach him these things. You teach him what his response must be. You remind him of, of the sign that God has given this morning to assure him of this gospel promise and to encourage him toward the kinds of heartfelt meditation that we see in verse 19, the kind of worship that we see in verse 20, for the Savior who has come. Not only his response, but all of ours, is to ponder, praise, and proclaim, saying glory to God in the highest. Amen. Our Father in heaven, We thank you that Christ has come, that though in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage, that he is not like the kings of this earth who use their power to trample the weak and to seize more power, but he condescended and humbled himself. He did not come to inconvenience the weak, but to lift them up taking on the form of a servant, bringing himself to the measure of our weakness that we might be brought up to the measure of his strength, being made low that he might lift us up, condescending to the cradle and then to the cross that we might have peace with you. Help us, Lord, to respond to you with praise like the angels and the shepherds. Help us to respond to you with pondering these things in our hearts even beyond this time of year. Help us also to proclaim these things like the shepherds do to others. Let this, Father, be our faith-filled response. We pray that it would be the response of Titus, that you would give grace to Andrew and Holly as they teach him about this Savior, that even the corresponding sign that you have given him this morning in baptism, use it to increase his faith and all of ours, we pray. In Jesus' name.